Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And as always, uh, we invite you to come and speak with any of the pastors and elders with any questions you may have, uh, any comments, concerns, needs, uh, maybe something that you're going through. Please uh, do not hesitate to speak with any one of us after service is over. Sunday mornings are a great opportunity uh, for that. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 21 and verse 1 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 880 if you are using a church Bible, page 880. Luke chapter 21 and verse 1. And before we look at this text together, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and and now as we come before your word, we ask that you would show to us the glory of your son, Jesus, and that you would also convict us of uh, what a life well lived is really like, and that you would also convince us of your great love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In our text, we find a a very uh, bittersweet account of both the beauty uh, and the ugliness of religion. The ugliness where we have uh, the weakest, poorest person being exploited. And yet the beauty where we have that same person within our heart in a wonderful worship anyway. In, in our passage, we find a widow who no one else seems to notice, although they absolutely should have. And we have Jesus not only noticing her, but exalting her in these final few days of his life. That even with his own suffering and betrayal and crucifixion coming up close ahead, he is taken aback with her, for he sees in her something that he wants to bring to the forefront for believers to understand for all generations. Something wonderful and and beautiful in this self-emptying religion that loses oneself to something far greater than oneself. And Jesus also at the same time wants to bring to the forefront a condemnation of the ugly, uh, false, and ego-driven, fake spirituality that is really just infatuated with all of this right here. And so this passage is very bitter and very sweet as both beauty and ugliness are found side by side and in contrast with one another. And we read in verse 1 as we see some of this ugliness. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Uh, Here we see first the the horror of this religious system that has really gotten everything wrong, where a poor widow in great need uh, goes almost entirely unnoticed. And the wealthy with their gifts, uh, they're pedestaled. And so human need means nothing, and human vanity is is what is attractive, and it's, it's really ugly. Now, to understand this, we really need to look at the previous two verses in 46 and 47 of chapter 20 where Jesus says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Within the context of the first century, the kind of religion that had become prevalent amongst the scribes and the premier leadership of the day. The prevalent religion was one of uh, ego-driven vanity, ugly self-centeredness, and a spiritual narcissism. 
It's a religion for show and not one of the heart. It's the kind of spirituality where you want to appear more holy than you actually are and to gain a reputation for godliness rather than possessing true godliness. Hypocrisy, which Pastor Dave covered last Sunday, layers of masks and makeup which cover up the true status of what is within. And in this setting, the long robes signify this love of people's attention. Places of honor, the very same. This is social ladder climbing. Long prayers so that others can hear me wax eloquently and stand in awe of what I got going on. I mean, you aren't even praying at that point to God, but simply performing for the crowd who is listening. It's all pretentious. It is vain and it's self-glorifying. And here's the thing which was true then and is ever true today. The more vain and the more self-centered and self-important we are and we become, the less aware we will be of the needs of the people around us. And the less that their suffering will really move the needle at all for any of us. When we become infatuated with ourselves, we lose our ability to be genuinely concerned for others. Where when we should help those who cannot help themselves, we find that we have better things to invest in and other areas that we feel require our attention with more urgency. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. One of the purest ways that true religion is demonstrated is in the care of those who are not being cared for. And what's happening within the first century Judaism at, at the highest ranks is this, selfish worldliness and the ignoring of those very ones who are helplessly in deep affliction. And this isn't just a New Testament thing, for throughout the Old Testament, God's people were always being measured by the criteria of how they treated the most marginalized. You know, brothers and sisters, one of the uh, most unmistakable ways that we can assess uh, the status of our own heart and our own faith is by how much the suffering of those least able to do anything about their suffering really and concretely impacts the way that we live our lives. This is one of the ways that the masks and the makeup get removed very quickly. And now with that being said, we return to the scene in front of us. Jesus is in the court of the woman of the temple grounds, and in that court, there were placed these large metal uh, kind of horn-shaped receptacles where people would put their offering in and which would be then collected into the temple treasury. And it's a Passover season, so it's crowded. This is one of the times of the year where everyone Jewish is supposed to come to Jerusalem in this pilgrimage. And so if you want to people watch, this is it. This is the exact place. This is the exact time to find the most people to watch. And there would be these lines of people waiting to put their offering into these receptacles. And, and with money being made out of metal, their coins, this is prior to the printing press, each offering would actually make a noise as it went into the bin. And you can imagine the oohs and the ahs of when that big money went down into it, especially the ones with the longest robes and the longest prayers, who everyone seems to know and who only seem to give when everyone else is watching. And Jesus is taking this entire uh, disgusting scene in the week of his very own death, and you can only imagine what he's feeling. It's probably something like what he already felt just a little more than a chapter ago 
when he brought to a violent halt the shadiness of the outer court of the temple, saying, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 46, Jesus understands that the prevalent religious system is spiritually bankrupt. And then he sees that there is this poor widow who owns almost nothing except these two copper coins. Two lepta, each worth about one one hundredth and twenty-eighth of a denarius. You can see that in the footnote of your Bible if you're using the church Bible. A denarius, denarius is what a laborer made in one day. This is one one hundred and twenty-eighth of that wage. And this is nothing. This is pennies. There's no big clinkety-clank-clank when she puts those coins in. It's as if her offering only serves as the intermission for the real show between the larger ones that we can ooh and we can awe. But it makes sense that she has so little because in this century, the men made all the money, the women did not. And if your husband died, therefore, you no longer had any kind of livelihood unless he came from wealth, which this woman obviously did not come from wealth. She's helpless. There were no strong, independent career women for the most part in first century ancient Palestine. And therefore, she would be wholly dependent upon charity. This is someone who cannot help herself. And yet, in the biggest spiritual pilgrimage of the year, her net worth is now not even two lepta, but zero. And there's not a single soul watching this show in front of the clinkety-clank-clank that cares one bit. I mean, this is a scene. And this is religious bankruptcy. But it actually gets worse because what does Jesus say, just say about these scribes, that they devour widows' houses. It's, it's not only that they don't help the ones who can't help themselves. No, but they actually rob them. They eat their equity. They devour. The religious leadership of the nation who's supposed to guide the people spiritually and care for them as, as shepherds of the people, uh, they're actually robbing the people. And somehow, the, the text is not explicit on the how, but, but history does set this contemptible pattern where charlatans often take advantage of people by using a reputation for holiness, godliness, and trustworthiness and leverage that reputation for personal gain. These scribes, they eat widow equity. That's what the word devour means. They eat it. And with the last two coins in this woman's financial portfolio, she is now down to nothing and is left to herself. And Jesus, he sees it all. And it's precisely scenes like this one which will invite the judgment that Jesus will pronounce upon this very temple in the following passage. Now, now granted, I'm sure that there are many people in this context who gave from the heart and gave unto the Lord. God always has his remnant, even in the most evil of eras. And so Jesus is not speaking against their offering, nor is he judging the true spirituality of his true people. But it had become characteristic of those in the upper echelon of spirituality that the whole thing has become the show more for vanity than it is for anything else, and not just a show, but a highway robbery of the ones most in need. And so here we see really this horror of a religious system that has gotten everything wrong, uh, where a poor widow in great need goes almost entirely unnoticed, and the rich with their gifts are being pedestaled. This is the ugliness of some kinds of religion. But in verse 3, we see the great contrast. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Uh, there's a, a beauty and a purity to the kind of worship 
that gives the entirety of themselves to God, where the self is really swallowed up by something much greater than the self. And here we have someone who is so unlike the scribes. She is unnamed, uh, unnoticed. She wears no long robe. There is no one greeting her, nor saving the best seat in the temple for her. And there are no oohs and there are no ahs when she approaches those receptacles. And yet, she gives her all to the Lord. Everything she has to live on. All that she is. Now, to appreciate what's going on here, I think we have to understand uh, really just the scene there. There are parts of the temple which are actually covered in gold. I mean, the temple grounds here, they're not like our local church grounds. This place is pretty spectacular. I don't know if you've ever uh, entered into a fancy hotel lobby and, and it just feels grand. I mean, these, these temple grounds are grand. And if I'm in her shoes, I'm thinking this place is rich already. I mean, look at all the money that's already here. I mean, if no one's looking, I might try and scratch some of the gold off. I could take some of that home. They won't miss it. And, and therefore, for me to give my net worth, it just doesn't make any kind of sense. It's like throwing a cup of water into the ocean. It's not going to make a real material difference. No one's going to notice if I just skip this line. I mean, no one really notices me anyway. And, and, and doesn't God want me to be happy? I mean, he's already taken my husband. He's taken my comfort. He's, he's taken everything from me. What more do I have to give? And at this point, wouldn't it be unreasonable if he didn't understand why? I should use these last two lepta of mine to get something hot to eat instead. God doesn't want me to starve now, does he? I'm just a poor widow with two little coins. And I'm sure that she herself could come up with a litany of objections and an airtight rationale for why she, in her life stage, and in this season she is in, is just simply in a place where giving her all to the Lord just doesn't make any kind of sense. But all of this is somehow utterly irrelevant for this poor widow. She wants to give the very best of what she has. She wants to give her all to God. And little though it may be, and how inconsequential it really amounts to in the eyes of the crowds around her, she knows that there is only one who will really notice this. And it's really only his eyes and his notice which matter to her. I know it's little and insignificant, but I want all of it. And I want all of myself to be the Lord's. There's a, a beauty to this woman's worship, and it's really the cry of the heart within the ones who do believe that the Lord that we want with all of our hearts, that he might have all of us, that we might give the whole of ourselves to someone much greater than ourselves, rather than to be infatuated with what we see in the mirror or seek the applause and the recognition of other created beings rather than the creator himself. Uh, if we were to be real with ourselves, I mean, who of us is not little and insignificant anyway? I mean, even this widow put a million up in there. Isn't that little and insignificant when we think of who we're giving it to? You think God needs a million dollars? In the Christmas season, I don't know if you had that person in your life where you're trying to find out a gift for them, but they already have everything. It's hard. They don't need anything I have to offer them. But need is not what it's even about. The how and what we do tells us everything that what is within. And for this woman, she gave more than anyone else in the entire crowd. You know, God's evaluation system is not like ours is. 
We often do like to ooh and ah at a lot of stuff that he doesn't ooh and ah at. You know, my, my kids, uh, they're into cars, and, and they ooh and ah at every fancy one in Hawaii Kai, uh, especially the most obnoxious kind. And then they ask me, how much is that? I don't know how much it costs. You got to go look it up. And then they'll look up on a phone, and then they'll ooh and ah again at the price. And we can sometimes do the same thing when we try and evaluate worship. Is it a big, big production? Ooh, ah. Are there power people in the congregation, especially the hip and the trendy kind? Ooh, ah. What about this missions movement? What are the numbers? Et cetera, et cetera, and yada, yada. But, but the Lord's valuation system is quite different. It's not about what is showy or flashy or extra. I mean, everything about this widow is really less than. Less status, less money, less recognition, less everything. And yet Jesus makes the bold statement in the very last week of his life. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. More than all. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. And I wonder if our worship or really costs us anything substantial, or it's just off the top of our abundance. Now, here's the thing. Only God knows how much this worship really costs her. But he really is the only one that matters. Because the measure is not how many coins we give, but the measure is how much of ourselves we offer to him. And this is the case always. You know, God, he's not into fractional worship and, and fractional lordship. Let me read to you another text of another woman who gets this very same point. We covered this in Luke chapter 7 and verse 37, and I'll read this to you. It says there, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, that's Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. I mean, that's not just a few drips and save the rest for later. That's the entire thing, the one possession she had, which was most valuable to her. And there's something about these two women on the fringes of society that understand the nature of true and beautiful worship, and that is to give our all to Jesus Christ. You know, there are some offerings that are very large in dollar signs, and yet they can actually be very small. And there are some of the smallest contributions which are relatively worthless, and yet they are very great. Because the point, again, is not about money at all. It's about the heart of worship and whose eyes it is that we are living before. And so there is this beauty to this poor widow that really stands in stark contrast to the ugliness of the religion of the scribes. Now, I don't think that these narcissistic scribes with their fancy robes and their long prayers who aren't even to God and who devour widows' houses, I don't think these spiritually bankrupt people ever dreamed as a young child, I can't wait, one day when I grow up, I'm going to swindle a widow. That's not what people dream about when they're young. But their very existence in every era and in every generation tells us that something happened along the way. And over time, and perhaps ever so subtly, we can easily begin to fall more and more in love with what we see in the mirror. 
And here's the thing, even if we don't always like what we see, we can still be consumed with it. And this love affair uh, with self-centeredness and, and glory and recognition, this stroking of the ego where my comfort is king and how everything relates to me. I mean, even self-deprecation is strangely self-centered as long as it involves more time on the self. This process and progress of unchecked vanity, the more we move in that direction, again, the less aware we will be of the needs of the people around us. And most importantly, we will become blind to the glory of the one who is right in front of us. The ultimate giving in this passage is not even from the widow in our text. The ultimate giving of oneself is from Jesus in these last couple of days before he will give himself to die for us. Now she gives all of herself to the one who is worthy in her mind. Jesus gives all of himself to the ones whom he knows are unworthy. She gives herself to God. God is giving himself to sinners. I mean, this is the advent, and this is why Christmas is so amazing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's not like God was naive about what's in the world. And it would be spectacular if we were worthy that God would give Jesus to us. But it is utterly astounding that he who knows all hearts and knows everything about us and notices what no one else notices and is intimate with every thought we have ever had. It is astounding that he who knows every single skeleton in each of our closets, that he, with this knowledge, still loves to the degree that he would give to us Jesus. I think a lot of us would be loved less, not more, if people knew this level of detail. But God is precisely the opposite. Romans 5, 6, for a while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, who would give himself to a people like that? The, the greatest, most gracious giver is God himself. You know, one of... Uh, my great fears for my life personally in the church is really just to lose the wonder of Jesus giving himself uh, to a people like us. You know, we get so accustomed to the gospel uh, that it no longer even excites anything in us. We go through these little Advent books and it's like we have to order more because we've been through the other Advent books. New children's Bible because we've already read these three children's Bibles. We get so accustomed to it that it doesn't ignite anything in us. And, and it's something like what the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 faced. It says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. R.C. Sproul writes this about humanity. He says, somehow we have developed the ability to miss the glory of God. And somehow we've missed, we've developed the ability to miss the glory of God. And I think what so often makes us blind to it, again, is this simply a growing infatuation with ourselves instead. We can't be enamored with two things at once. And it's a trap, brothers and sisters. To be consumed with this is a prison that's just merely dressed up as freedom. 
I mean, the current uh, of our culture in this self-awareness, self-help, self-health, focusing on the self to really uh, alleviate the issues that we deal with, with therapy being like 90% self and dissecting and exegeting yourself where really all the data is, comes from the first person anyway, surprise, surprise. Because self-perception becomes this reality. It's enticing and it's intoxicating because there's some gratification in it. Now, granted, we must know ourselves so that we can run to Jesus Christ. But focusing on this doesn't solve our issues. Focusing on Jesus is what solves our issues. And that's not what is happening in this current day and age, where being consumed by me, 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 me is now even being Christianized and implemented within the church. C.S. Lewis famously writes this, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And it can actually get to the point where we can design the least intrusive Jesus that we can create for ourselves with relatively little impact on how we want to live and the way we want to give and the way we desire to direct our families or our personal goals in retirement where the clear call of Jesus to die to self, to really find life, is utterly foreign to the religion we have concocted. I mean, is there any prison worse than the prison of being absorbed with this, where a widow with two mites might be right next to you, and we are more concerned with the length of our robe and the sound of our voices and the length of our fake prayers and some filter I got to put on my face before we send out the Christmas cards. This message and this text, I don't think it's designed uh, just to make us feel guilty for putting some presents underneath the tree. Have your presents. We get Amazon and Target boxes at the front door every time we leave. And one of the worst applications we could offer in a text like this is, is to feel guilt and then go out and donate some guilt offering to some organization so that we can feel better and then go enjoy our life like it was already prior to this offering. Now, I think in this Christmas season, we really have to reflect on what it is that enamors us. Is the beauty of Jesus' self-giving, is it wondrous to us? Is the beauty of this widow's offering, is it wondrous to us? Paul Tripp, he says this, what has captured the wonder of our hearts will control the way that we live. What has captured the wonder of our hearts will control the way that we live. And therefore, we can look at the way we live and we can trace that back and know with great certainty what it is we wonder at. And if we wonder at the right things, we will be ambitious for glory that is not our own, and it's going to be altogether beautiful. But if we wonder, again, at the wrong things, I think religion can get really ugly. And would it be that each of us would run to Jesus, brothers and sisters, and give ourselves wholly to him, that we might find life and freedom and what we were designed to be? Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for oh, this widow. We thank you most of all for Jesus. Lord, where would we be without your grace? Where would we be without your giving? Where would you be if, if, if he uh, did not give up riches, that by his poverty we might be rich? I, I pray, God, that you would enamor us again with the gospel, that you would bring to us the wonder of salvation, that, that you put a twinkle in our eye as we look upon your amazing grace. And I pray, Lord, that that would captivate our hearts more than anything else. Lord, help us to behold Jesus. May he be everything to us. We ask these things in his name. Amen.